Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking uh, with Dr. Jonathan Topham. Uh, professor Jonathan Huntham is a professor of history at history of science at the University of Leeds. He's the co-author and co-editor of several books, most recently, Science Periodicals in the 19th Century Britain, Constructing Scientific Communities, published by Chicago University Press. And today, I'm talking to him about a great book he published again with uh, Chicago University Press called Reading the Book of Nature, How Eight Bestsellers Reconnected Christianity and the Sciences on the Eve of the Victorian Age. Jonathan, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. This is a great title, How Eight uh, Bestsellers Reconnected Christianity and the S- uh, Sciences on the Eve of Victorian Age. But before we start talking about the book, could you please briefly introduce yourself and tell us about your field of expertise and how you became interested in this area? Yes, of course. Um, so I, I'm a, a professor of history of science at, at Leeds, as uh, Morteza has said, um, and my work focuses particularly on science in Britain in the decades between the the French Revolution of 1789 and and when Victoria became queen in the late 1830s. And I'm especially interested in the role of printed communication in the way in which the sciences were remade at what was a key moment of transition. So book manufacture had been much the same for more than three centuries since Gutenberg introduced the uh, movable type printing press to Europe. Uh, But this period that I'm interested in was the period in which the making of books became much more of an industrial process. And that supported much greater output and much wider reading. And that had consequences. So much of my research has been devoted to exploring those consequences. But I'm also very much interested in how the rapid changes in the sciences at that period, their increasing prominence in society, the increasing emphasis on law-like explanation, and also the changing social standing of what were called in a horribly gendered phrase, the men of science, how those related to religious concerns in Britain especially uh, to uh, the concerns of uh, Britain's dominant Protestant Christians. And uh, I'm I'm kind of interested to know the story of the inception of this book. And maybe you could very briefly in a nutshell tell us the main thesis of the book, and then we'll get through some more details as we go ahead. Sure. Um, Yeah, so the the, the book... um, uh, has had quite a long gestation in a in a certain way of speaking because I first encountered the Bridgewater treatises which form the the focus of the book. These are the eight bestsellers. Um, I first encountered them as an undergraduate student in in Cambridge when I was first stumbling on the history of science, and it seemed to me that they had real potential to give insight 
into the religious connections of the sciences at the time when a young Charles Darwin was learning to think about the history of life on Earth. So much of what had been written about science and religion in the 19th century in Britain seemed to be about the high Victorian period after Darwin had published his theory. And I was attracted by the idea of going back a generation to see how things stood before he came up with his theory, uh, let alone before he began to publicise it. So I began, in fact, an undergraduate dissertation on the series, and then I went on to write a PhD. But after that, my career carried me off in other directions. And it was only about a dozen years ago that I finally got to revisit this topic, which I'd always thought would make a fascinating book. Uh, and with years of experience as a historian behind me, I was able to do extensive further research, pushing the analysis much further. Uh, and I think you asked me what the, 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 the thesis of the book was in a, a nutshell. So probably the best way yeah. to convey this is to to start with the anecdote that I used in the book to set it up, because it comes as a significant surprise to people to discover that the very first words of Darwin's Origin of Species are actually a quotation opposite the title page from one of the Bridgewater treatises, suggesting that God's agency in the universe operates through natural laws rather than by miracles. Um, so why would Darwin wish to quote from one of the Bridgewater treatises I ask in the book. And my argument is that over the preceding generation, this series of books had done much to reassure a Christian public in Britain that the sciences were religiously safe, that the tendency of the, quotes, men of science to reach for natural laws or long periods in their accounts of the history of creation, that, that, that those attempts, that tendency didn't undermine Christianity, but rather it was entirely consistent with it. Um, and in that sense, uh, they contributed, I, I, I think, to smooth the path for the acceptance of Darwinian evolution, even though the Bridgewater treatises themselves had explicitly repudiated earlier evolutionary theorizing like that of Lamarck and Etienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, much less familiar name. Um, so then the book goes on to explore how this came about. How were the books produced by authors and publishers to achieve these effects? And in the second half of the book, how were they taken up by readers in such ways mm. that they rebaptized the sciences on the eve of the Victorian age? And this brings me to a further thesis at a kind of meta level, which is that once you take seriously how books circulate and are used in a culture, you find yourself offering a history that's more rooted in what people do, in practices, in their relationships, their feelings, their values, and less exclusively about what happens at the level of thinking or believing. So I, I think I offer a, a, you know, a really novel history of science and religion in the generation before Darwin uh, with this innovation at, at its core. Mm -hmm. That was a great introduction to the book. And, and there were, you, you read points which we'll pick up as we go ahead um cool. you mentioned bridgewater treaties so for the benefit i did not know anything about this series of books before i audience it would be great if you could tell us what was this treatise this series of books who commissioned them and and briefly introduce some of the authors there were eight authors in we don't have to of course go through all of them we'll talk about <laughs> a few of them but briefly tell us maybe what who were they who they were and what subjects they covered in sure, this treatise. yeah yeah 
So the Bridgewater Treatises, uh, there were a series of eight books written by leading scientific figures published between 1833 and 1836, and their general theme was the power, wisdom, and goodness of God as manifested in the creation. Um, and that phrase came from a bequest because they were commissioned by a bequest from the last Earl of Bridgewater, a rather unprepossessing specimen of the English milord who had spent much of his life as a clergyman neglecting his duties and then writing self-indulgent works of scholarship, fathering several illegitimate children and managing to live in Paris through most of the Napoleonic Wars, extraordinarily. Um, but at last he inherited his title and a large amount of money, and that meant he could leave a bequest to the president of the Royal Society, Britain's premier scientific society, for a work on God's goodness. And this seems in part to have reflected a bad conscience. It, it, you know, it, he was keen to sort of make up, make amends. But he was also keen that his patronage would demonstrate the importance of the aristocracy during the age of revolution. So when everybody was having a revolution, this was a way of saying, hey, look, the aristocracy can be great. They can, uh, they can provide patronage. Now, the president of the Royal Society, uh, this was a moment where the Royal Society was undergoing some pressure for reform. And the president of the Royal Society decided that uh, he could do with a bit of moral support. And he sought the assistance of the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London to come up with eight very eminent names of men of science to do honour to this theme. Um, you know, he, he really wanted to be sure that he was uh, not going to be uh, criticised for his choices. Uh, and certainly um, they they came up with a very impressive list. They started with um, some topics that the Earl of Bridgewater had suggested. He'd said that the human hand was very impressive. So they uh, appointed a leading anatomist, Sir Charles Bell. Some people will have heard of Bell's palsy. He, he did important work on the nervous system. Um, Sir Charles Bill, Bell wrote an entire treatise on the hand. Uh, another topic that the uh, the Earl mentioned was the function of digestion. He, he thought this represented the wonders of transformation and the way in which the spiritual and the material might interconnect. So the subject was assigned to a chemist and physiologist, William Prout, uh, somebody who, again, might be familiar from Prout's hypothesis, important in matter theory. He also did critical early work on digestion. Other subjects were more straightforward, say, for instance, astronomy and general physics. That was given to William Hewell, who became a towering figure in early 19th century science. He's the man, incidentally, who coined the word scientist. Um, and similarly distinguished authors were assigned to natural history and animal and vegetable physiology, geology and mineralogy, um, the physical condition of man, and also the moral and intellectual condition of man. So a right range of subjects and quite a range of distinguished authors. Uh, and and the, the idea of this series of books, maybe one of the ideas was to support the, the fact that science and Christianity are not in conflict. They're actually harmonious and congruent with one another. Am I right? Yes, ab absolutely. Um, uh, the the series actually ran to twelve volumes and six thousand pages. Um, uh, so you can imagine that with eight authors, twelve volumes, six thousand pages, there was actually a range of different approaches to the religious significance of the sciences. Uh, in many ways, that actually served to their advantage because people could choose the one that they most liked. 
Um, uh, the authors were actually quite diverse in their religious views. Uh, so uh, on the one hand, you've got the entomologist William Kirby, who was a, a high church Anglican vicar. Uh, and on the other hand, you've got the political economist Thomas Chalmers, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister who later became famous for leading the evangelicals out of the Church of Scotland to establish the Free Church. It was the disruption of the Church of Scotland, a huge event in, in Scottish history. Um, but um, there is wording used by William Hewell in his Bridgewater Treatise, which quite well characterizes the series as a whole. So he said in his preface, he said, um, where's this quote? Um, that he saw his, he'd been given a limited objective, which was to lead the friends of religion to look with confidence and pleasure on the progress of the sciences by showing how admirably every advance in our knowledge of the universe harmonizes with the belief in a most wise and good God. So this is the sort of general mood of them that they're trying to show how the latest developments in the sciences, subject by subject, are congruent with orthodox Christianity. So, for instance, Huell could show that the increasing power of the laws of physics to account for the phenomena of the universe didn't take away from the sense that there was a divine legislator behind those laws. Uh, and similarly, Peter Mark Roger, that is, uh, he of the thesaurus, Roger's thesaurus, who was a, a, a medical man and a physician, uh, and a physiologist rather, he could show that the increasing understanding of the common anatomical structures of vertebrates likewise contributed to an appreciation of a god who had a unified plan for nature. Uh, and perhaps most obviously, William Buckland, who was Oxford's professor of geology, argued that the findings of modern geology, with millions of years being invoked, didn't undermine Christianity, they instead provided evidence that there had been an original creation and that the beautiful adaptation and balance in the living world was something that had gone on for millennia. So more evidence of God's creation, not less. And, and one fascinating part of the book uh, to me was your focus on the idea of authorship. That I must confess that to me that was unexpected in in, in in a book which is about sort of the history of science maybe. So why did you focus on the idea of authorship and why do you think it's important and what role does it have in the creation of this occupation of scientists um, in this period? Yes, it's a very good question. The, the, um, it's, it's really important to appreciate that in the 1830s there are next to no paid posts for these quotes, men of science in Britain, uh, even less than on the European continent, there are very limited opportunities to be, uh, in any sense, a professional as a, a man of science. Uh, so for many, they're dependent upon private wealth. Some are uh, university professors, but there are very limited numbers of university professorships. Many of them are clergy or uh, employed as uh, physicians or surgeons. So th there's a real difficulty in supporting scientific research. And in the 1830s, this was one of the great topics of the day. 
our men of science to be supported. Well, each of the authors of the Bridgewater treatises was paid a thousand pounds. And that was in most cases significantly more than they earned in the course of a year from other sources. It was a pretty significant sum of money. And I pay quite a lot of attention to this uh, precisely because I think it helps us to better understand the role that authorship played in supporting these men of science at this transitional moment. Uh, it also actually flags up for us the way in which the practice of authorship, actually what's involved in writing a book, um, can illuminate how the texts came to be as they were. So it's very notable how much the authors who had been given these appointments were casting around for pre-existing materials that they could draw on in preparing their texts. That, that included lecture notes. Uh, William Buckland in Oxford, for instance, said to his wife, oh, I'll just uh, write up my lecture notes and put a sermon on the front. Um, some of them drew on sermons. That was the case with William Hewell, who had delivered some university sermons in Cambridge about the tendency of modern science. And he drew on these heavily as he wrote his book on astronomy and general physics. Unpublished manuscripts. William Prout had a wonderful, a wonderful manuscript uh, on diseases of the stomach um, that he raided for materials for his Bridgewater treatise. That book had never appeared. Well, why not recycle some of the text here? Um, and uh, in the case of Peter Mark Roger, he found himself um, uh, having angered the professor at University College London, Robert Edmund Grant, because he'd attended that professor's lectures and used them freely as he prepared his work on physiology. So it's, it's really interesting to see how the practice of authorship actually affects the tone and content of what was produced. And, and Charles Bell is a, a particularly charming example because he wrote the book in dictation. So he didn't actually write it. His wife wrote it. And the composition of the text depended on this exchange between husband and wife as uh, he tried to find the right words to reach an audience that was not his usual audience of, of, of medical students, but actually a much wider audience that included women. Uh, and there's another character, a character you mentioned in the book, William Paley, uh, who yeah. had this kind of established approach to natural theology. But you mentioned that these authors uh, tried to avoid that, let's say, established uh, approach to natural theology in writing these uh, books. Uh, can you talk about this part of the book, please? Sure, yeah. Um, very often when historians and others have written about the Bridge Bridgewater treatises, they've done it uh, as if these were just an extension of this classic and hugely popular work by the Anglican clergyman William Paley entitled Natural Theology, which uh, was first published a generation earlier in 1802. Now, natural theology is the form of theology that seeks to set out what can be known about God and his relation with humans without the aid of any form of self-revelation on God's part. So no scriptures, no miracles, no prophecies and so on. Um, so uh, 
it's natural in the sense that it's the product of of natural reason, unaided reason. Paley's work focuses almost exclusively on one of the standard arguments of natural theology, uh, quite familiar, I think, to people, the argument from design. Uh, and he provides a huge number of examples. So in Paley's formulation, the argument goes like this. When we see something that's designed like a watch, we infer that there must be a designer. And since there's clearly design in nature, then nature must also have had a designer. And he goes on to conclude that designer is clearly a divine creator. Now, Paley's work was certainly very widely read in the early 19th century, but in fact, a large proportion of Christians in Britain were very dubious or outright hostile to the idea that humans could actually infer the existence of God by unaided reason. And the reason that they were dubious about that is that them, they, they viewed humans' minds as having been clouded by the fall from grace in the Garden of Eden, Adam's disobedience. Uh, and instead, they felt that, that humans needed God's self-revelation through the Bible and the church in order to learn about God. And the Bridgewater authors were very aware of this. And to a large extent, they shied away from making any strong claims about what could be known about God by natural theology. Instead, they were offering something altogether more modest. The claim was that... Um, what was being learned about the creation by men of science confirmed what was known about God from the Bible and from church tradition. Uh, and to have done something more than that, to have made a stronger claim, would actually have been rather controversial. And they and they largely, as I say, avoided going that way. I, th I think it, what he just said is a perfect segue to my next question, which um, um, that I wanted to ask, which was, how these authors manage to sort of provide a history of sciences, but at the same time argue that advances of sciences pose no threat to religious authority or Christianity? Because uh, I, I studied English literature myself, and when I was reading the history of England, especially Victorian era, it was booming with scientific research, scientific advances. It was geology, you know, Darwin, and I what the standard text that I read told me that uh, the Christianity, the foundations of Christianity were terribly shaken uh, at that time. So it's quite interesting to me that we have these series of books on uh, science, which show that, uh, that they are they are in harmony with each other. And I'm particularly thinking of two authors, uh, Thomas Chalmers, Chalmers, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and William yeah. uh, Ewell, who came up with the word scientist, as you mentioned. Yeah, um, it, it, it's uh, it's interesting that you've pulled out uh, Hewell and Chalmers um, uh, because they were the two among the authors who actually showed the highest degree of theological sophistication. And uh, neither of them was prepared to make strong claims for natural theology, just as I've been talking mm -hmm. about. But each of them considered that the sciences could enhance rather than damage the Christian's appreciation of God's power, goodness and wisdom. Uh, so in the case of Huell, he was especially keen to address something that was causing quite a lot of disquiet in the period. That is um, the idea that um, the expansion of law-like explanation in astronomy and physics might diminish 
the believer's appreciation of God's action. Um, in uh, the 1820s, somebody uh, published a little anecdote about uh, the French mathematical physicist uh, Laplace, uh, who uh, reportedly, when asked by Napoleon where God fitted into his system of the universe, had, had answered, I have no need of that hypothesis. Um, so there's this sense that maybe the expansion of law-like explanation is really undermining of Christianity. But Hewell argued that to anybody whose mind was properly constituted, laws spoke of a divine lawgiver. And when you considered the wonderfully designed laws of the universe, then you must have an enhanced appreciation of God as both caring and, in fact, he said, morally good. And so, first of all, the laws will confirm and uh, increase your sense of God's agency in the universe. But also he wanted to rush his readers on to appreciate the importance of the moral context, that God was not just the lawgiver who gave the laws of the universe, but also a moral agent who established moral laws. So Huell uh, situated this, if you like, hardest of sciences, the physics, in, um, in a, a thoroughly religious context. And indeed, in his later chapters, he emphasised the limitations of human knowledge and the extent to which humans must ultimately stand in awe and humility before the extraordinary character of the universe. Thomas Chalmers uh, was also very strong on the extent to which God's moral qualities were evidenced in scientific laws. In this case, it was the laws of political economy and moral philosophy. Um, and he considered that the mechanism of uh, society showed very clearly that nature, if you like, rewarded virtue and punished vice. There were all kinds of things going on, like the way in which in the economic system, virtue uh, resulted in financial well-being, uh, but also in moral, moral philosophy as well. Uh, people's experience of virtue was that it had uh, a super added pleasure, whereas their experience of vice was that it brought um, a, a whole uh, additional degree of misery beyond the, the, the natural punishments that it brought. Uh, and Chalmers was very clear that here we had laws in political economy that spoke to God's moral qualities. Now, he wanted to point out that any argument of natural theology that you might erect on this would be quite weak. But he said there was enough prima facie evidence here that anyone studying it would be morally obliged to go on to examine the altogether more compelling evidence provided by the Bible. So Thomas Chalmers, Scottish evangelical clergyman, was rushing the reader on to consult the Bible. And it's quite interesting you mentioned Bible because that was also my next question about <laughs> the role of Bible in, in relation to modern sciences, especially according to um, people like William Kirby and William Buckland. Yes, I mean, they're a, they're a fascinating pair. They're very contrasting. Um, so 
obviously there's this concern about the extension of law-like explanation. There's also concern in the 1830s uh, about the implications of increasingly historicist views of the process of creation for the Bible. Uh, and, and, and of course, nowhere more was that the case than with geology. And the Reverend William Buckland tackled the issue head on. So a decade before Buckland, this Oxford professor of geology, had made a name for himself by amassing evidence, especially from caves containing fossil remains, that he claimed supported a belief in a recent and geologically significant flood, the last of a series of geological catastrophes. Now, by the time he wrote his Bridgewater Treatise, he'd come to accept that these could not be uh, evidence of the flood of Noah. And indeed, in the 1840s, he actually became Britain's leading advocate of the view that the deposits had actually been created by retreating glaciers. But the bulk of his Bridgewater Treatise had nothing to say about the Bible. Only at the start, in the first chapter, did he set out the view that the Bible was not designed to teach geology and that the entirety of geo geological history fell between the first two verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, pause, and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Um, uh, and this, he claimed, this interpretation were, had the backing of the university's high church professor of Hebrew and such theological luminaries as the great reformer Martin Luther. And men of science, according to Buckland, needed to be left to be free to explore the history of the earth without fear or favour. But he was quite clear that whatever they discovered would ultimately be found to be consistent with biblical truth. And Buckland was very clear that the science of geology offered new evidence that the earth had a definite beginning and that throughout its history, it confirmed the designs of the creator. Now, if we flip over to William Kirby, another Anglican clergyman, um, Kirby was a, a, an entomologist uh, and his introduction to entomology did an awful lot to make the science popular in Britain. But he had an altogether different view about the Bible. He was by far the oldest and most theologically conservative of the authors. And while he had no need to touch on the subject, he actually briefly offered his own account of the Earth's history. And this was on a short, biblically literalist timescale, so quite different from Buckland. But much more remarkably, and much to the bemusement of many readers, he also tried to justify an approach inherited from the 18th century of interpreting the Hebrew text of the Bible symbolically, with a view to discovering hidden truths about nature that were hidden in the Hebrew text. Uh, this was Hutchinsonianism after John Hutchinson, and it was an extraordinary outlier among the Bridgewater treatises. It's worth noting, I've said before, that one of the advantages of the series was that it offered options for a diversity of religious tastes, so that for some high church readers, Kirby's rather odd approach came to represent the Bridgewater brand, and that was the kind of Bridgewater uh, treatise that they liked. Uh, we'll pick up on that idea because that's something that I found quite fascinating. I think that both religious people and also atheists were able to use these books for their own purposes. But uh, before that, I'd like to talk about something else. As at the beginning of the interview, when you talked about the structure of the book and the main thesis of the book, uh, one part was about how the books were received in the literary market of the time. 
these books became a success. They became bestsellers. And I, I was wondering if you could talk about uh, success in the literary market of the time, given that it was, they might have been expensive books. What was the reception of the the public? How were they receiving the public? Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is really important for the argument of the book. And I, I've given quite a lot of attention to the changing economy of publication in the 1830s, because it was this that allowed books like the Bridgewater Treatises to have the effects that they did in the making of Victorian culture. Historians of science are increasingly aware that processes of communication are central to the making of scientific knowledge. And when, as in the early 19th century, technologies of communication change, that does impact the whole economy of knowledge. So the series appeared just a moment moment when cheap scientific works were beginning to circulate extensively in Britain for the first time. Uh, this was very much aided by the introduction of steam presses and stereotyping these, these machine processes. Uh, in particular, the wonderfully named Society for the Diffusion of U Useful Knowledge had started up in 1826 with a mission to publish scientific pamphlets at sixpence a time. And by 1832, the society was issuing a penny magazine that sold over 200,000 copies, quite unheard of in the period. These publications were notably lacking in religious framing, and many religious commentators were alarmed that readers would no longer encounter scientific matter in a religious context. So when the Bridgewater treatises began to appear, they offered a striking alternative in which science was introduced by leading figures in relation to Protestant Christianity. And this is why, despite the fact that leading publishers had been concerned that the Bridgewater treatises might not sell, and despite their relatively high prices, the series actually sold surprisingly well, both to individuals and importantly, to the increasing number of libraries, including to hundreds of Mechanics Institute's libraries uh, that had been set up just over the preceding decade. And part of the story here was the way also that the series was picked up across the full range of periodicals right from the early weeks. Newspapers and literary journals reviewed the series confirming its importance in providing authoritative introductions to the latest in modern science, while also demonstrating its congruence with Orthodox Christianity. And this continued over the four years that it took the series to appear. So that made a, a huge and enduring impression on a wide range of readers. And the point was that the series was not only reviewed in the heavyweight periodicals, things for the intellectuals, there were reviews and comments and extracts in cheap religious magazines, in the new penny periodicals that reached these unprecedented numbers of readers. And of course, each periodical gave its own spin. But time and again, and even when the newspaper press went into a feeding frenzy over Buckland's treatise on geology, the message came across that modern science supported rather than undermining Christianity. And it's also worth noting that the scientific credentials of the series were such that even leading scientific and medical journals discussed their contents. It's it, it's fascinating, for instance, to see uh, the extended and rather appreciative discussions that you get in The Lancet. Uh, so my understanding is that the 
the the content of the book. It's true that they were written to 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 make this argument that sciences are not against science is not against religion, but there was a lot of scientific validity to the content as well. Am I right? Oh, absolutely. These were these were really significant interventions, scientifically speaking. Um, for instance, uh, it, it's really interesting to find the president of the Geological Society, Charles Lyell, uh, in his annual address, celebrating the appearance of William Buckland's Bridgewater Treatise and saying that this was a really important contribution to the science, particularly because of the way in which it brought together much of the recent paleontological evidence in a form that was uh, synthesized and usable. Uh, there was indeed in Buckland's Bridgewater quite original research about uh, a, a large uh, fossil specimen, the Megatherium, which had never appeared in print before. But others of the authors too uh, contributed novel scientific findings. William Prout for instance, uh, gave the most extended account of what is known as Prout's hypothesis in the pages of his Bridgewater Treatise, and that spawned quite an extensive discussion in scientific publications concerning that particular theory. And there, are, I could give other examples too. And uh, going back to the point you made earlier, how how did religious circles and at the same time atheists use these books for their own purposes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is fascinating how um, readers are so creative in the way they respond to books. Um, we mm. we think as authors that we we know what kind of meaning we've given to our books, and uh, uh, actually, of course, readers come along and tell us all sorts of things about what our books actually mean. Um, Obviously, it was one thing for reviewers to say that the Bridgewater treatises might reconnect Christianity and the sciences, but how was that supposed to work in practice? Uh, and in writing the book, I spent a lot of hours winkling out accounts of the experiences of readers with the series, interpreting those records in relation to various kinds of evidence, uh, various kinds of advice rather offered to, to readers. Uh, and one of the most novel aspects of, of the book, I think, is the way in which I've been able to locate the Bridgewater treatises within the everyday practice of the Christian religion. So there are accounts here of how readers use the series to connect the latest science with their daily devotional practices, both privately and in families. Uh, and one Peter Familias was so pleased with how he'd used them in this way that he incorporated extensive extracts from the series in a very popular four volume set of daily devotions for the use of families. When science was encountered alongside the Bible and prayers and a concern with spiritual growth, there was no question that it supported Christian faith. Another aspect of family religion was in managing relationships between spouses, uh, between parents and children. And again, the Bridgewater treatises provided opportunities there. So in an age when gendered domestic and public spheres were increasingly prominent, women in the home, men out in the world of activity. Reading the Bridgewaters actually was a way of finding common spiritual cause, uh, husbands and wife, wives reading them together. And parents also keen to ensure that their children are not distracted from spiritual priorities by mere science, also used the series to ensure that the scientific knowledge was given this distinctively Christian association. Uh, you also find 
perhaps surprisingly, pulpit preachers finding the series um, useful for illustrating and emphasising practical lessons of Christian religious teaching. I know that sounds quite surprising, but there they are. Um, these these traces of um, pulpit uh, performances in this way. Um, there were some preachers, uh, a small group of preachers, typically Baptists, Congregationalists and Methodists who were located in industrial cities where there were self-proclaimed, um, uh, this is a, a Victorian word for you, infidel activists um, who began to use the Bridgewater treatises to argue that atheism was, was um, unscientific. Um, uh, now, that wasn't a typical use, but it was sufficiently significant to cause a backlash. So this pulls us on to our atheists. And, you know, as soon as Christian campaigners in contexts like the Bradford atheist controversy or the London City Mission, as soon as they set about trying to use the Bridgewater treatises to argue for the existence of God, it naturally drew the attention of these self-styled infidels to the arguments involved. And they'd been presented with the series as the modern face of natural theology, justifying Christianity on the basis of the argument from design. And their natural response was to claim that such arguments were actually shamefully weak and that they brought Christianity into disrepute. Uh, they were so weak that the writers, one, one author said, ought to be indicted for blasphemy because they were actually undermining Christianity. It's also notable that the Bridgewater treatises, because they were accessible and up to date and authoritative, um, were actually invaluable sources for atheists who themselves wanted to offer an alternative account of science. So, for instance, the radical Charles Southwell, who had been imprisoned for blasphemy in his penny journal, The Oracle of Reason, in 1842, he set about asking his supporters for a copy of Buckland's Bridgewater Treatise because he wanted to use it in writing a long-running evolutionary series in his magazine uh, called Progressive Gradation. Uh, so they could actually re-engineer the contents uh, to support alternative interpretations of the science. It's a fascinating story. <laughs> and uh, these authors also presented uh, their books and, and at the annual meetings of, of the British Association for the Advancement of Science to show that uh, science, scientific uh, pursuit, there, there are Christian virtues to scientific uh, pursuits. Am I right? Yes. Um, uh, one of the one of the striking things about the, the series is that they brought a group of leading um, men of science in this horrible gendered phrase before the public in the guise of, of spiritual guides. And this was really important at a moment in British history when these kind of men of science were beginning to claim a new role in cultural leadership and in the management of the state. And the, you, you didn't see this anywhere more clearly than at the annual meetings of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, which was founded in 1830. And this association met annually at different locations outside of London, welcoming these men of science from the metropolis and the locality to review the latest developments in the sciences. And it came in the middle of the summer. Newspapers were very quiet, what we these days call the silly season. So it, 
its proceedings filled many common column inches. It, it gained a very wide attention. And throughout the 1830s, many of the Bridgewater authors were among the leading members of the association. And year on year, they used its meetings to reinforce the message of the series, the message that men of science were religiously orthodox, that they had the moral qualities requisite in those who were leaders of the nation. And the most prominent of the virtues was that of humility, because some religious commentators had sought to suggest that the besetting sin of science was pride, but the Bridgewater authors and their friends used the series to show not only that men of science were devout, they were religious, but that they were patiently and humbly submitting themselves to the test of observation and experiment, that they would relinquish cherished theories where necessary. They sat humbly before nature, before God's creation. And this demeanour, um, uh, as, as the performances at the British Association made clear, set the men of science apart as people fit to take a place in the leadership of the nation. So that when, for instance, Buckland presented a pre-publication copy of his Bridgewater Treatise to the Association's noble president in 1836, in front of a quarter of the assembled cabinet, you know, the, the, the centre of, of the UK government um, at one of these British Association meetings uh, and announced that the world was millions of years old, which might be seen as an arrogant claim. Um, actually, it could be conveyed as the claim of a humble man of science who was prepared to sit patiently before nature and learn from God's creation. And when Buckland and Hewell were later given significant state patronage as they were, the fact that they were authors of the Bridgewater Treatises was cited as key evidence of their fitness to receive patronage because they were fit people to have a leadership role in the nation. And again, to show the importance of these books, they 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 also encourage scientific education, science education in universities, right? Universities like Cambridge and Oxford, I guess you mentioned that they they were picked up these books there as well. Yeah, yeah. It it wasn't just in presenting an image of the Christian man of science to the world that they were useful. They were they were referenced and, and used across Britain's universities in ways that shaped and inspired a, a new generation. I, one of them was actually still being used at Owens College in Manchester, what became the University of Manchester as late as the 1890s. 60 years later. Um, historians have tended to presume that it was particularly at the Anglican universities of Oxford and Cambridge uh, and also actually the Anglican King's College London that the series was in use. And there where there was widespread concern about the dangers of natural theology and distracting from a more developed Christian theology, the use of the Bridgewater treatises was sometimes actually a bit more contested Although it is the case that leading scientific figures such as the geologist Adam Sedgwick in Cambridge and the geometrician Baden-Powell in Oxford used them to argue for the value of scientific education. But it, it, it's arguably at the secular University College London and at the University of Edinburgh that we find the Bridgewater treatises more straightforwardly in use in signalling the religious safety of the sciences and also in allowing students to examine the religious significance of the latest findings. Um, and it's re really rather nice once you dig into student reactions, they're, they're quite diverse and interesting and certainly quite creative. 
So some built directly on the content of the series, as when William Benjamin Carpenter published essays while still a student at Edinburgh uh, that built on uh, Roger's uh, idealist morphology and its, its theological gloss. Others used them as more of a foil to, to think against, both for their religious and their scientific views. Um, Edward Forbes, who was um, later uh, a natural history professor in London, uh, while still a student at Edinburgh, uh, was part of an extraordinary Platonist universal brotherhood of friends of truth. Um, and they uh, found the Bridgewater treatises something much more to argue with than to agree with. But either way, <clears throat> the series was really quite seminal in shaping the following generation of British men of science. <clears throat> and how did the scientists engage with these books, especially with regards to the role of the perception of design in scientific observation? And, and maybe it's a good point to to go back to what you said at the beginning, that even Charles Darwin referred to these books uh, in his writings. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it certainly wasn't just the students who were engaging um, with the Bridgewaters in thinking about the proper connection between Christianity and scientific practice. Um, as I've said already, you know, even in terms of the content the series was important for those actively in, engaged in scientific research. But in addition, the series allowed scientific readers to explore what it was to do scientific research. What were the proper objects of inquiry and what were the what was the proper mode of inquiry? Now, there, the, the, the focus on natural laws was especially important. The Bridgewater treatises gave the sense that as far as the man of science was concerned, God's action should be expected to be found in natural laws. And several readers immediately in the 1830s immediately started to push this perspective further, including in relation to the origin of new species. So the idea uh, was that this idea was outlined in 1837 in a, a book by the mathematician Charles Babbage. Uh, it was an unofficial and fragmentary ninth Bridgewater treatise. Um, and there he applied that perspective of natural laws being God's mode of action to the idea of the origin of new species occurring by natural law. But another reader who responded in similar fashion was Robert Chambers, the Edinburgh publisher, whose anonymous Vestiges of the Natural History of Creation, which came out in 1844, drew explicitly on the example of the Bridgewater treatises to argue for the religious orthodoxy of an evolutionary scheme that that book set out, uh, as explored in Jim Secord's uh, important book, Victorian Sensation. The Bridgewater treatises also fed into this very live and lively debate about the role of the perception of design, as you mentioned. Um, uh, what role did the perception of design have in the work, the work of scientific observation, particularly in relation to anatomy and physiology? And the question was whether the scientific observer could only perceive what was going on if they approached the subject seeking to identify functional adaptation, or whether in fact it was form that had primacy in living creatures rather than function, with evidence of design being a kind of secondary consideration as the larger morphological 
patterns emerged. Now, interestingly, actually, the Bridgewater Treatise has offered a range of views on this topic. And one of the authors, William Huell, famously actually switched sides, having published his Bridgewater. But the key players in this field, such as the physiologist William Benjamin Carpenter, who I've mentioned, and the naturalist Richard Owen, developed that they both developed their ideas in explicit dialogue with the Bridgewater Treatises. Um, and Darwin is a, an especially good example. Um, he was definitely in dialogue with the series in the crucial months over which he developed his transmutation theory in the 1830s. He adopted the notion of creation by law and he plumped for the focus on functional adaptation and thus for the role of design in the process of observation. Now, this doesn't mean, don't get me wrong, that he accepted the analysis of the Bridgewater treatises straightforwardly. There were times when the facile examples of design that they contained evoked a, a derision from Darwin. But he found much in them to use, both in the scientific details, but also in terms of the approach. So while um, by the 1860s, he'd long since abandoned his earlier Christian belief. He was publishing, uh, when he was publishing his book on the fertilization of orchids, he told his publisher that it was, and I quote, like a Bridgewater treatise, because it focused, he said, on the perfection of contrivances. So this design. Um, and of course, on the other side of things, in 1859, he was still happy to quote from Huell concerning creation by law at the start of his uh, Origin of Species. So I think we can conclude that the, the series was of real practical importance to men of science in the 1830s, as well as serving, as I've tried to show, as an emblem of the Christian orthodoxy of the sciences. Uh Thank you very much, uh, Professor Jonathan Tampan. But before we end this conversation, I'm kind of curious to know if there is any other project or books you're currently working on, anything we should expect in the near future? Oh, that's great. Yes, I have a, a big project underway with, with um, uh, several colleagues at the moment to explore the history of the Society for the Diffusion of Useful Knowledge that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And uh, we're going to provide really the first book length study of this important society, which transformed cheap publication in the um, early 19th century in Britain, became, in fact, something that was emulated throughout the world and did so with a vision of bringing science to the heart of British society. And it's extraordinary that at one point, as, as many as half of the British cabinet were members of the committee of this society. Over a space of 20 years, the society produced a vast array of really innovative publications. So you can expect, uh, I hope, a fascinating study of that in a couple of years time. Great. I hope to be able to talk to you soon about that book as well. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time and for this fascinating conversation about this wonderful book. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this.